If you want to look at the back again of our handy-dandy bulletin here, there is a box that says, follow us. And there's on there a website address, there's a blog, there's an Instagram, there's a Facebook, and there is an app. And one of the reasons why it's important for you to know that is because there are virtually no announcements in here of events that are taking place, including, for example, family camp that takes place on August 12th, I think, through 14th, coming up soon. And Mark specifically said to me, I may be in the cafe this morning, and so if anybody wants information about family camp and they need to talk to me about that, please go to the cafe and find me. So please do that. But then in addition to that, if you're not a person who uses the computer much, and so you're not looking things up on the web or the blog or the Instagram or Facebook or the app, here's what you can do. Call the office. The telephone will still work for you. And so I want to encourage you, the phone number's at the bottom, and if you need information, please call the office. We'd love for you to do so. I've already mentioned family camp. Um, I haven't said anything about Faces Baptism, which took place last Sunday, and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, You know, it's exciting that our... Uh, Friendspeak program, lost the word, that Friendspeak has done something wonderful in communicating the good news to Faza, that Steve Ason was able to talk to him on a regular basis, not just about English and improve his English skills, but to talk to Faza about Jesus Christ, and I'm just so thankful for that. Uh, Faza's come to our life group on Thursday nights a bit uh, also, and we're grateful that, that that's the case. I hope that that continues, and it's just so grateful to see someone come to Jesus and so praise the Lord. Steve, I, I want to say to you, job well done. But really, it's the Lord who deserves all the praise. And so we'll just thank Christ for what it do, he's done in having one of our elders study with someone and have them come to Jesus. Praise the Lord. Okay, so gang, I think we're ready. Keith, if you want to get the lights, and hopefully, hopefully this will work. I must admit, Jack, I thought I had you figured. It turns out you're a hard man to predict. Me, I'm dishonest. And a dishonest man you can always trust to be dishonest. Honestly, it's the honest ones you want to watch out for. Because you can never predict they're going to do something incredibly stupid. of the map, mate. Here, there be monsters. Okay, Sam, that's good. Thank you. Did you get that line? Did you hear what he said? He said, You're off the edge of the map, mate. (laughs) And here, there be monsters. In the line, there's meaning. 
He didn't say that for no reason. He said it for a reason. What is it that he's trying to say? You're off the edge of the map. And here there be monsters. What does that mean? What do you think? Now, clearly in the movie, something's going on. Jack Sparrow, I don't think, has grasped everything that's going on in terms of the curse that was placed on all the other pirates. What is it that Jack Sparrow can't do? And if we were to continue to play the film, in just a moment after that, Jack Sparrow takes a, a sword and he thrusts it into the heart of Captain Barbosa. But what happens when he does? Nothing. That's exactly right. Nothing happens. Which is a shock to Jack Sparrow. But certainly not a shock to Captain Barbosa. And he gets something that Jack Sparrow doesn't get. What is it? What does Jack Sparrow get or not get? What does Captain Barbosa get? And why is it that Jack Sparrow is off the edge of the map? There is a curse, for sure. And Jack Sparrow doesn't know about the curse. And so he is in brand new territory off the map, but it's not just new territory. It is startlingly destructive territory. And in fact, he finds himself in a situation where he can apparently do nothing. Because the curse is way too strong. He doesn't begin to understand it. He doesn't begin to understand the situation that he's in. And so he's off the map. And then, not just off the map where he doesn't understand, but off the map, there be monsters. And so, indeed, he finds himself in circumstances where he's not just over his head, but he's against some kind of force which... As far as Barbosa knows at that moment, we find out a few moments later that things are much different. But at that moment, it looks both to Jack Sparrow and Barbosa as though there is nothing that Sparrow can do. The odds against him are absolutely insurmountable. He's off the map. And off the map, there be monsters. Well, it seems to me like our churches are off the map. And it seems to me that out there, off the edge of the map, there be monsters. And what I mean by that is simply that our churches appear to be, at this point in their history, facing what are almost insurmountable obstacles to us being successful. Here's what I mean. 
1982, Robin and I went to a church in Southern California. We worked there for four and a half, almost five years. During the time we were there, the church grew from about 250 or 300 to about 600. There was real progress made in about five years. The same church today has about 150 people attending it. So in 1986, they were 600. Now they're about 150. The West Side Church of Christ in Beaverton, Oregon, in 1990, was about 350 people on Sunday morning. Today, there are about 100, give or take 20 on any given Sunday. The East Side Church of Christ in Portland, Oregon, where my father-in-law served as an elder for almost 20 years, has gone from about 300 in 1980 to under 200 today. Not exactly a positive growth rate. Some churches, like the Central Church of Christ in Portland, simply aren't there any longer. But I can remember when they had an attendance of about 300 people on a Sunday morning. Northtown Church of Christ in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where my sister-in-law goes. Last week, Robin and I were at a wedding for my niece. Their church in the early 1990s was about 350. Today, they have between 70 and 100 on Sunday mornings. None of that represents much of a rosy picture. Now, you might think, well, that's the United States. I'm sure things are way better in Canada. I wish they were. I can remember in, say, 1990, the Delta Church of Christ in Vancouver, where J. Don Rogers served for about 20 years or so, was between 120 and 140 or so on Sunday morning. Today, the Delta Church of Christ has about 25. On a good day, they might have 30 people that meet on Sunday morning. The Kamloops Church of Christ closed their doors years ago. The Cranbrook Church of Christ closed their doors years ago. In Prince George, there might be one or two families left. There is no longer a Church of Christ in Revelstoke. There is no longer a Church of Christ in Yorkton. The Salmon Arm Church, which has been there since at least 1960 when Lynn Anderson helped plant it, is struggling. And I look at all of that and I think to myself, we appear to be off the map where there are monsters and they are wreaking havoc on the churches of Christ outside the Bible Belt. Now the fact is that in the Bible Belt of the United States, things are not much better, but they are a bit better. At least in large cities in the United States, you still have places where, <clears throat> where lots of people can come together and still worship together in a, in a large church and it's kind of like the, the big box store thing that happens. And so a large church of a thousand can withstand some of the pressures. And people flock there, and young people flock there, and some of the smaller churches are victims of that, but the churches that are larger, at least, they seem to be doing well. You wonder sometimes at the cost of what? 
Well, my point is, is that things are difficult. And here's the relevancy for our own church. There's a a sense, at least a sense, in which even our church is in trouble. Not because we're doing badly, but simply because ultimately we are warring against an adversary of incredible power. There is an anti-church, anti-Christian sentiment, and that's not, by the way, to say an anti-spiritual sentiment, because actually in our world there's a lot of spiritual people. But there is an anti-church, anti-Christian sentiment that is growing faster than we can hope to cope with, in a sense. And so we're off the map, where there are monsters, because our world is just bigger and greater and more powerful in its attack on us than almost any time in the history of the church ever. Like since 300 or so, when the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian, Since that time, there has almost never been a period in the history of the world, except in certain places, where the church has had to face the kind of challenges that it has to face today. There'd be monsters. And the question is, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to respond? You know, we'd have options like, well, we could just kind of cloister put up walls and barriers. We could hope that if we get inside our tank, that the armored walls will be able to withstand all the shells that are thrown against us. But I don't think that's the answer. And so what are we going to do? I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 17. By the way, uh, 25 years ago, we used to publish statistics about how we were doing in terms of the overall fellowship of Churches of Christ. And we would say that around the world we were about 2.2 million or so with about 13,000 Churches of Christ in North America and about 13,000 around the rest of the world. The estimates right now are below 1.6 million. Just think about that. Now, I don't know if the 2.2 was accurate. The 1.6, I think, is pretty accurate. I'm I'm guessing it was fairly accurate with 2.2 as well. But things are changing, and they're changing drastically. In fact, I've said before, and it sounds blasphemous to say this, but there's a sense in which it's true. The gates of hell are withstanding the onslaught of the church. The Bible says that's not going to be the case. But when it comes to churches of Christ and where we've been recently, it's happening. 1 Samuel 17. Look with me at verse 2. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. 
Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are not you, are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of Uh, of an Ephrathite named uh, Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons and in Saul's time he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the the war. The firstborn was, and then the sons are named. Verse 15, but David went back and forth from Saul to to tend to his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. There was Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Skip down to verse 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will have great, give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab... David's oldest brother heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here and with whom do you leave these few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Man, did he ever misinterpret this guy's heart. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy and he's been a fighting man from his youth. And it's just like Saul is saying to David, you're off the map. And here there be monsters. There's a big one out here and you're only a boy. And you think you're going to do something about him? Don't you realize that the odds of you defeating this Philistine are insurmountable? But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And that is so interesting what Saul then tries. 
Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and watch what he does. He chooses five smooth stones from the stream. Does that sound familiar? He put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and his, and his sling in his hand, and with these he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, You're off the map! Don't you realize that I be a monster? Verse 44, come here, he said, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. And as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank deep into his forehead and he fell face down on the earth. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. It gets more graphic after that. He cuts his head off. Sometimes we think that the way that we're going to defeat the challenges that come our way is that we're going to put on someone else's armor. We've got some method that we're going to follow. We have some scheme, some plan, some, something we devise that we think is going to do it. And that's exactly what happens here. When Saul says to David, you're going to need my, my armor, the very best here, put this on. And Saul is trying all the humanly possible ways that he can think of to somehow support and build up this young man with such great faith so that he can go forth and do what Saul himself should be doing. And it doesn't work that way. There's only one thing that I can think of that's going to allow us to defeat these insurmountable obstacles. Because we're off the map. When you're off the map, you can't do this on your own. And the only way that I can see that this could ever happen, any kind of victory, is going to be Israel's, is when God 
is trusted in by his people. And they say to themselves, we cannot begin to do this. But our God can. You know, it's totally appropriate that Peter and Chelsea are here today. You know, they left our church about three years ago or so to go and plant a church. Really, it's a ridiculous idea. In light of everything that I just read a few moments ago, in terms of our statistics and where churches are at in North America, it's silly. Like, who are these people? The only way that there could begin to be success in an effort like that is if someone is absolutely dependent upon God to do something that we can't begin to do ourselves. And so I look at our church and I think to myself, and certainly Peter and Chelsea, and I think we are in trouble because the odds are so vastly heaped up against us. We can't begin to make this. But there was something that David had that no one else in Israel had. And it wasn't armor. They all had that. It wasn't a sling. Every shepherd boy had one of those. It wasn't even five smooth stones. These are helpful, but they alone can't win the day. Even David's skill as a slingshot artist, a slinger of stones, doesn't mean that he can defeat the champion. It's only, only the presence of God in the actions of David that can win this battle. David is willing to put himself into the battle. He's willing to put, in fact, all of Israel on the line. You remember what happens if he loses the battle? Like if he loses this boy, they are all sunk. They have to become the subjects of the Philistines if he loses the war for them. Everything is at stake. And the fact is, is that on the surface it looks like this is doomed to failure from the outset. There is really no possibility, no reason at all, why this boy should be able to defeat this nine-foot champion. It is not in any way reasonable that they should have sent him out there. Except they must have seen, Saul had to have seen, that in David there was something that didn't exist in anybody else. It's simply the faith of a shepherd boy. And our God chooses to honor that kind of faith. And so I don't know what your perspective is about the church and its future. Like, does the current attitude in North America about who we are scare you? Like, do you realize that there are people in our society who despise us because of our faith in Jesus? Does that scare you? It scares me a bit. I have to admit, it scares me a bit. And I do wonder about the future and what it holds for us.
I don't know how we can be thinking Christians without being scared at least a little bit when we consider things around us. But the challenge before us still needs a response. Now again, our temptation to respond here is is that we're going to do this with the best armor that we can find. We're pretty human. We think that the key will be our advanced equipment. We live in an age where technology allows us to overcome just about everything. You know, it's amazing. People keep thinking, and maybe this is maybe we're starting to lose this idea, but especially 20 or 30 years ago, we thought it was inevitable every disease is going to get cured. Science can do anything. And yet there has been so little progress against cancer, it's amazing. Like people are dying all the time from cancer and we have been unable to stop it. Not making much progress at all. Is that where we're at? Is this pretty much hopeless? We're going to try all these human things and it's simply not going to work? We hope it will? We'll use our best technology and maybe we can conquer this? Put together our best methods, our best plan, our best strategizing. And we're going to be able to defeat all of these pressures against us. Have we not learned by now that depending on human structures, we simply set ourselves up for failure? Because we're depending on structures far more than we trust in God. We don't need we don't need an elaborate plan. What we need is one smooth stone and God. That's all it takes. We don't even need all five. You know the fact is there are Dozens of methods by which churches use to be successful and to grow. There are a multitude of ways of reaching people for Christ. And we need to sort through this. We need to do the best we can. We need to use best methods, all of that. But the triumph of the church will not be found in some system, new or old. The the early church was not successful at conquering the Roman Empire because they had method. They were successful at conquering the Roman Empire because they had a master whom they trusted and followed and to whom they were completely sold out. And we need to be sold out. Like we can't begin... To just sit here and hope that maybe we're going to compete against and conquer these insurmountable odds because we hoped so much. Instead, we have to be sold out. Our hearts have to be His. What does the Bible say about David's heart? He was after God's heart because he was a man after God's own heart. 
God was able to use him and to do something with him. It didn't matter whether he was off the map. It doesn't matter who the monsters are that are out there. All that matters is that here is a man who had a heart that was absolutely sold out seeking after God. And because he did, he did he was able to overcome those insurmountable odds. And I look at our world today and I think about our churches today and I think, how in the world are we ever going to save this? And of course, that's the wrong language entirely. We don't have to save anything. We have to put ourselves completely in the hands who is going to do the savings. And so we can't think that we can serve God and mammon and be successful for Christ. Because when we do, our hearts are not completely His. We can't think that we can follow some rationalized plan of doing whatever it is that we think we should be doing and doing it right and getting everything right. And because we got everything right, that somehow we're going to convince God that we're good enough for Him to do something among us. No, we need to just throw ourselves at His feet because we absolutely trust Him. And so advancing the kingdom will come for those who know that no humanly devised armor, no careful planning, no strategizing, no rationalizing, nothing serves as an adequate substitute for the power and presence of God. We have to trust in Him alone. Period. And so because of that, despite the challenges, we're not at all hopeless or helpless. We have the capacity in our hearts to be as faithful and as trusting as David was. The question is, will we be as faithful as David? That's the issue, really. Are we going to be as faithful as David? And so I'm excited, actually, about the future. I'm excited about our fall. I've been thinking about September. You all want to go on summer holidays. I'm ready for September. Bring on the cold weather. Bring them back, God. I want so much for us to get into doing God's work as we all give our hearts completely to Him. And is He not able to do something against the insurmountable odds? He is. Of course He is. And I just can't wait. And so I am exhorting you this morning, today, to have the kind of faith that David has had. We have the chance to embark on a, a new future again. A new era again. Like we do every fall. As we move in the direction of giving our hearts completely to Him. And God working among us like only He can do. And that's great news. And so in the midst of a day when it seems like there's lots of bad news, we have great news about what God is capable of doing through faithful people who give their hearts completely to Him. Let us join together and trust the Lord completely and slay some giants. Lord, we praise You and thank You today for the gift we have in Jesus. 
We thank you for the gift of your spirit who comes and fills us and fills our church. We thank you for the way that you filled David's life. And although he made some horrible mistakes, his heart was yours. Father, I pray that you'd make our hearts yours and enable us to to beat all of these apparently insurmountable odds, the things that are steeped against us because you're the living God. Help us to have the faith of David. Sir Jesus, we pray. Amen.